special time of worship. That was, um, yeah, really special. And actually what the main theme that we're going to be looking at today as we continue our series going through Lent is about worship. We're going to be thinking about how we can fight for more loyalty to God. But I was going to put this at the end, but I feel like God wants me to say it now because I'm so aware that on Mothering Sunday, having a big blinking title behind me that says positive testing, it's actually really hard for some people here for so many different reasons. Um, This is my first Mothering Sunday with Caleb. He's 11 months. But for the last few years, three, four years, you wouldn't have found me in church today. Because honestly, and I worked for a church, it was a day's annual leave, it was just too hard. Caleb's our fourth baby, but he's the only one I ever got to hold. And honestly, when I was thinking about today and thinking about how we can talk about positive testing on Mothering Sunday, it was really jarring in my spirit. It was really hard. Because I still in this place, struggle to think of the positives that came out of those three, four years of my life. But they were there because God was there. And as I reflect on that time, and as honestly, just starting now to get into that process of reflecting on it, and as I think about where God was in the midst of this horrendously painful season, I look back and I see his fingerprints all over it. I see that he was there in scans. I see that he was there in consultancy. I I see that he was there when we were told that we had to move location and someone intervened so that we didn't have to and that allowed me to get to the best consultant in the UK. I see God working miraculously, because Caleb is a miracle, through situations, but I also see him working miraculously through doctors and nurses and medication. So I am so aware that today, as we look at this idea of positive testing, as we look at this series of Lent, that for some of us here, we are in the midst of valley seasons, of wilderness seasons, of seasons between the now and the not yet, and you're screaming out, God, where is the positiveness in this? I'm struggling to see your fingerprints right now. I know you're here, but I'm struggling to see it. But brothers and sisters, can I encourage you this morning that he is there. He is with you. That he hasn't abandoned or forsaken you in that place. And this morning, we're going to focus a bit on worship. And I think sometimes especially within evangelical charismatic circles, we can think about worship as the dancing and shouting with tambourines and the hallelujahs and the hands in the air and everyone has to be happy all of the time. Because if we don't look happy, then does that threaten our theology? No, that's not what the Bible teaches us. The Bible talks about lament. Lament. I like to think about lament as worship in the minor key. 
is thinking, God, this is really hard and this is my heart and I'm struggling, but I know you're there and I know you're God and yet I will worship you. God, I'm in the midst of a season I don't understand. I'm in my wilderness. I'm in this period where it feels like testing, but I know what you have promised and yet I will keep worshipping you. We don't always need to go to God with our eight million things of reasons why we are happy. And gratitude and thankfulness, yes, are amazing gifts that he has given us to shift our perspective. But there's just as much time for the lament and the God, this is hard, but I know you are with me. So, we're going to dive into our series, um, carrying on looking at this period where Jesus spent time in the wilderness, where Jesus spent time being tested by Satan. Um, because what I love about scripture is the situations that we face today, we can always find. Um, an example in the Bible of someone who's been through similar I mean, in the Bible, there is, you know, Jesus did not go through the period of unexplained miscarriages, but Jesus did go through a period of this of in the wilderness, period where he had to rely on God for his strength, for his provision. He had to choose to worship God. So um, we're going to read the whole of our passage for context. So it's Matthew, um, uh, Matthew 11, I think, 4. I didn't write that down. I just wrote Matthew starting at verse 1. Really helpful. Uh, so in your Bibles, find the bit in Matthew where Jesus is tested, which Andrew has told me is chapter 4. And we will read the first 11 verses together. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting, 40 days and 40 nights he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to a holy city and had him stand in the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And then these three verses were going to be our focus this morning. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. Thank you, Father, for your words. Thank you that you tell us it is alive and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. And Father, as we dive into your words this morning, will you give us all hearts to hear your, your cry to us this morning? Will you give us hearts that are receptive to what you have to hear? In Jesus' name, amen. 
So I um, used to love the film <coughs> Catch Me If You Can with like Le um, was it Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks. So I looked it up this week. Did you know it came out when I was 10 years old? It came out in 2002. I thought it was like much like later than that. But this film is based on the true story of Frank Abingale, who is a fraudster. And during the 60s and 70s, he poses as a pilot, a doctor, a lawyer, a professor, and he cashes more than $2 million in fraudulent checks. And the film shows the chase between Frank and this FBI investigator, um, played by Tom Hanks, um, as he tries to avoid the law. And there's a bit at the end of the film when Frank um, has been caught finally and he's sitting in prison and him and this FBI guy have kind of formed this weird relationship over the film. Um, they've become like friends through chasing each other. But the FBI agent comes to the prison and he tells Frank about a new fraudster that he's trying to find. And he shows him the check that he, this fraudster has been cashing. And in an instant, Frank looks at it and he says, you're looking for someone who works in a bank. Look at the way the six and the nine are cracked. That means the stamp's been used thousands of times before. You know, when we look, and then he also ends up working for the FBI, which is apparently a true story. Hmm. Um, but when we look at this passage, it can be really tempting to go and start thinking about the big temptations, the big testings that happen in our lives, the events that really shake our faith to the core. And yes, this passage, as I've said, does speak to them, but I think it also speaks to the um, kind of more subtle ways that the devil can manipulate the truth. Um, and, and he does that in order to test Jesus. And I believe that the devil manipulates truth in order to test us today. He offers a counterfeit or a forgery of what God says is true and good. And the things about counterfeits, the things about forgeries, is that they can look exactly the same. They are nearly identical to what is true and good in God's world. But there will always be a crack. Even if something looks the same at face value, in reality, it has no worth and is ultimately destructive. You know, the verses that we're going to focus on today, 8 to 10, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. Here the devil is offering Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. And this is just a parody of what God has already promised him. It's an imitation of what God has said will happen anyway. You see, we read throughout the Old Testament of prophecies of the coming Messiah, the King, who is Jesus. And we read in the Old Testament about how there will be a day when every nation on earth will bow down to him. Like Psalm 72 was written by David, and it acts both as a prayer for the coronation of new kings and as a prophecy for the coming Messiah. It says this, May he rule from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. May the desert tribes bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarnish from, and of distant shores bring tribute to him. 
May the kings of Sheba and Seba present him gifts. May all kings bow down to him and all nations serve him. And even at the moment, as we live in this period between when Jesus came and when Jesus comes again, we wait in the fulfillment of the time where all nations will bow down to him. Revelation 11.15 talks about the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. You know, so the devil is offering Jesus something that is already within his rights, There will be a day when all the nations of the earth bow down to him, but the devil is offering it to him now. He's offering him a chance to get the kingdoms an easier way, a shortcut. And this is actually really similar to what Sai looked at last week, when the devil was offering Jesus a shortcut to fame and recognition. Here, he's offering him a shortcut to get power. You see, the devil is an expert at taking the promises of God and twisting it and distorting it from his own benefit. We see that right at the beginning, don't we, in Genesis, when the snake approaches Adam and Eve and says, what's God really going to do if you take the fruit? Can't be that bad, can it? Or maybe God takes the truth to us today. God says that community and friendship is good and important, But wouldn't it just be so much easier if to engage in the gossip and banter in the workplace? Uh, You know, it's good to have friends and it's good to have community, but it's probably just easier if I don't mention that I'm a Christian to get it. Or does it really matter if I'm sleeping with my partner outside of marriage? We both love each other and are committed to each other. Or does it really matter if I am spending time with the Lord in my own, if I am trying to build a relationship with him on my own, as long as I'm going to church and it looks like I'm doing the right things and I'm on the rotas and, you know, I'm pretty busy, so I look pretty holy, does, is that, that's really what matters. It doesn't matter if I'm spending time in the secret place with him. The enemy is destructive. He comes like a thief in the night and I think it's often through the small corruptions that he tries to tempt us with. He wants us to take our eyes off God, take our eyes off the path God has called us to walk on and the path that God promises will give us life to the fullest. So how do we respond to temptation? So Jesus responds to the devil when he says, look, you can have all the kingdoms now. Just bow down and worship me. Jesus says, away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. This is the first time in the passage that Jesus directly addresses the devil. Away from me, Satan. And you know, sometimes when we read this story of um, the temptations, um, we can think of pictures like this. Um, Hopefully they'll come up in a minute. Here we are. Um, From kids' Bibles. And I can give you a rant on why kids' Bibles are equally helpful and equally unhelpful another time. But... (laughs) What I think this does, I think that sometimes we do think of the temptations in these kind of images. You know, 
The devil with his horns and the red jacket sneaking about there to trip Jesus up. And actually, I think there's something quite dangerous about this. Because what we start to do is fantasize our idea of who the devil is and in turn underplay the destruction that he can cause. You can take them off because they're not helpful. It was just illustration. (laughs) Because in the Western world, we have a tendency to make evil out to be an abstract concept. Because we are in a spiritual world just as much as we are in a physical one. Based on the teaching of Jesus, evil is personified and real. Evil has a name, Satan. And he is in league with other evil spiritual beings and is at war with God and all that is good, beautiful and true in God's world. C.S. Lewis in his book Screwtape Letters says we have two responses to this. The first response is to believe that there's a demon behind every door. And I'm sure, possibly if you've been around church circles, you've met some people like this. I had a fight with my husband this morning. The devil was out to get us. Were you both grumpy and tired and didn't communicate great? Oh, the devil just does not want me to pass this exam. Did you study? You know, the devil is not omnipresent. That means he cannot be more than one place at once. So not everything can be his fault. But there's a second response that C.S. Lewis talks about. And actually, I think that's pro- this is probably where we're more in danger of being in Britain today. And it's that's that we are, try and act all educated and progressive like Satan isn't really real at all. John Mark Comer says this, to the degree you don't take Satan seriously and the demonic realm seriously, you attribute his evil power to other people, yourselves, or worse yet, to God. The Bible tells us that the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. We should not fascinate ourselves with his activities, but there needs to be an awareness especially in these days, church. Ephesians 6, which talks about the armor of God, talks about how our battle is not against flesh and blood, but is against the powers and principalities. Our eyes need to be open to the spiritual battles that are going on, the spiritual battles that are going on, not just the physical ones. So yet again, I refer to the giant title that's been behind me for most of today, the positive testing. And I'm aware that you're thinking, come on, Jen, this does not sound that positive. But it is. Because we know who is the ultimate victory, right? We know who has won the battle. We know who is the winning team. We see that even in this passage today. Jesus says, away from me, Satan, and he has to go. The whole Bible is a story of God's kingdom defeating the powers of darkness. The turning point in the story of the Bible comes with Jesus. Jesus who came to earth, lived the perfect life, died the most horrendous death and rose again from the dead. And in rising again from the dead, the turning point comes because every power of evil is defeated. The kingdom of God is victorious. 
And we live in the midst of this story still. We live in the midst where we wait for Jesus to return again. And the enemy, even though he is defeated, he's on his final hurrah, as it meant, as it's kind of like, trying to bring destruction to all that is good and beautiful in God's world. And as followers of Christ, we're not called to just wait and see. We're not called to just live it out. The Lord calls us to be active participants in his story as he has done all through history with his people. You know, and I love the phrase that we're using in Trinity in this season of courageous resistance. We are being called to usher more and more in of God's kingdom over the powers of darkness which we can do because Jesus is victorious. The Bible tells us that we have the same power within us that raised Christ from the dead. We can pray just as Jesus did, away from me, Satan, and he has to go. How often do we spend looking for physical solutions to spiritual problems? A little example of this, and it wasn't a big thing, I had one of those days this week. So I'd come into Cheltenham. I'm still, I broke my wrist like eight weeks ago. I'm still not allowed to drive. Um, so I got the bus in with Caleb and I was in like an all right mood. I was fine. You know, I'd had some time with the Lord, just going to have a pond around, get some things, head back home. And I, don't, I had a couple of conversations with people along the way, people I knew. And I came here to meet Simon and we're just going to go and grab some lunch together before I headed back. And I was like, whoa, I feel off. You know when something in your spirit just doesn't sit right? (coughs) And I was like, I don't understand. Like, Caleb actually slept okay last night. Everything's going well. We've had a nice morning. Like, I I don't get it. I'm just in such a funk. And I was really snappy with him. I'd love to say that's the polite way I said it. It wasn't. And he said, "Um, can I pray for you? And I literally went, no. (laughs) This doesn't need prayer. (laughs) I'm just in a bad mood. (laughs) And he was, um, and I got on the bus, started going home. And about halfway home, Caleb had fallen asleep in the buggy. I was like, Lord, what's going on? And he was like, you should have taken that prayer. (laughs) It's spiritual. One of the conversations you had that day, the enemy tried to use it to distort your truth about who you are as a mother. Some lies were spoken over you. And I was like, whoops. So I did phone Simon and apologize. I was like, can you pray for me over the phone? Um, But how often are we looking for physical solutions to spiritual problems? The second way Jesus responds to the enemy is, away from me, Satan, he says. So turn away, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Worship within the New Testament context is very rarely written to describe a congregational gathering like ours. Instead, words like prayer, praise, edification would be used. But when we see the word worship written in the New Testament, it's mostly written to describe a whole life response. 
the Greek word for worship comes from the root word to bend down or to bend over. Worship, as the New Testament describes it, is far more than singing on a Sunday or a quiet time midweek. In Romans 12, it says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Worship, I think of, is less of as a specific action and more a posture of our hearts which says, God, you are the most important thing. You are my top priority. You have my focus. So what Jesus is doing in responding to this temptation is he's saying, away from me, Satan. I will worship God. He is changing his focus. He is changing the posture of his heart. You know, the subheading that I was given for today is positive testing, more loyalty to God. You know, loyalty, the dictionary defines as the giving or showing of firm and constant support or allegiance to a person or institution. Loyalty to God looks like a posture of worship. It looks like the offering of our bodies as a living sacrifice. It looks like allowing Jesus to be king in every area of our life. It looks like turning our backs on the enemy and fixing our eyes on the Lord. And you know, that posture of worship, as I alluded to at the beginning, doesn't just look like a posture of worship in the celebration place. It's a posture which we can adopt in the valley. It's a posture that we can adopt in the testing. Because it's not, it's being very honest with God of this is how I feel, this is where I am. But I want to keep my eyes fixed on you through it. But however hard it is, even if it's just by this much, help me keep my eyes on you through this wilderness. The picture I got as I was praying for this morning um, is as after Cheltenham Race Week is probably quite apt. You know the blinkers that horses put on to stop themselves getting distracted from the horses in the other lanes. I felt like God wanted to give us all blinkers this morning to put on to focus our attention back on him. To put our worship to him so that we're not distracted by what the enemy is doing to the left or to the right, but so we can focus on who he is, on what he's done, and who we say he, he is. The poet Mary Oliver writes that attention is the beginning of devotion. I love that phrase. Attention is the beginning of devotion. Because when we turn our attention to the Lord, when we turn it, we can't help but remember who he is. And in turn, our hearts become aligned with the truth that he speaks. How can we increase our awareness of God with us, in us, so that we may give him the worship that he is due his name? Um, I have a pet peeve. And it's to do with uh, kids' worship songs. Sorry, you're getting all my kids' ministry pet peeves today. Children's Bibles, worship songs. Um, and that is, where do we point when we're pointing for God in a kids' worship song? Where's the action? Up. We point up. 
We point far away. But we know that's not the reality of where God is. God Emmanuel, God within us. That the Holy Spirit lives within us. That he goes with us where we go. He goes with us in the valley. He goes with us in the testing. He is there. How is our awareness of him as we stand at the bus stop? How is our awareness of him as we go into work? How is our awareness of him as we go to the pub with mates? Are our blinkers on so that we aren't distracted? Let me just finish by telling you about one of my heroes. And this probably shows you how absolutely geeky I am. That one of my heroes um, is a Persian 12th century monk named um, Brother Lawrence. And he is a dishwasher in a monastery. And he wrote um, a book called, this thing called Practicing the Presence of God. And this is what he writes. The time of busyness does not with me differ from the time of prayer. And in the noise and clatter of my kitchen, while several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God in his great tranquility as if I were on my knees before the blessed sacraments. I ache for that relationship with the Holy Spirit where I'm just as aware of him as I'm washing the dishes as if I am before the altar at communion. I ache for that relationship with the Holy Spirit where he has my attention in the midst of battle, in the midst of testing, in the midst of hardship. But what I know is that he's not there, he's here. And that he wants to reveal himself to us more and more so that our hearts can be transformed into people who are in constant communion and constant worship and adoration of him.